Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's Insight Assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Jeff, you'll be glad to know I'm coming back to D.C. on Friday. (laughs) Good news for me, bad news for you, I'm sure. Yep. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. I'm here with Jane Coaston with ProPublica's Dara Lind. Um, and so today we wanted to, you know, sort of take take a break from from the news. We got a, a question in in the Facebook group about sex trafficking, uh, which had had come up uh, because of this. Uh, I guess we would call it a conspiracy theory uh, about the the furniture company Wayfair. Is, is is that right, Jane? Wayfair is a. I only do stories with a coastal main angle, and and Wayfair is a a big employer here in the Bangor area, but also maybe the center of a sex trafficking ring. So here's what happened, and because I think that this gets into the combination of things that some things that are not true, some things that are slightly true, and some things that are, eh, it's complicated. So. Here's what happened. In July of this year, as in this month, a bunch of people on social media started noticing that Wayfair, the furniture store with an extremely irritating jingle, was advertising utility closets and a number of other items for extraordinarily high prices. For instance, a set of pillows and shower curtains that were listed for $9,999. And for instance, a utility closet that was priced at more than $10,000. And so the conclusion to which social media users went to is immediately, and I'll quote from the Snopes uh, fact checked of this, but I've looked into this also, is if you search bungalow rows, a bunch of shower curtains and pillows show up priced at $9,999. Wayfair is fucking trafficking children. What the fuck? And so the images are completely real, but the users going directly to child trafficking did not make any sense. For instance, if you were an official business, why would you let anyone just purchase children on the internet on your official website? Wayfair resp- replied to Newsweek, who actually asked some questions. Some of these items also had names. So if you have bought anything from many stores, you may notice that the couch may have a name to it, like the Jenny couch or a specific pattern might have a name. And so the conclusion from people on conspiratorial Internet sites was that the products carry the names of people who had gone missing. The problem was that when some of these people tried to look into this, um, they noticed that you know, one, a lot of the people who allegedly were missing were not actually missing, and that a lot of this would just be coincidental. For instance, the fact that some of the product names may have the first names of missing children would just be a coincidence. And so... Right, some names are common. Right, some names are common. But, and I know that a lot of this sounds like conspiratorial nonsense, but it's had a massive impact in that um, organizations like Polaris, which has a national human trafficking hotline, have received such an extreme volume of reports, according to a July 20th uh, press release from the organization, that they can't respond to actual calls regarding actual trafficking. And... 
the trafficking hotline as it details is that they connect victims and survivors of sex and labor trafficking to services and support. But they've gotten so many responses with regard to Wayfair or people calling in demanding to have information about this that they can't actually do what their job is. And so there have been a host of other organizations that have experienced the same thing, where people are calling into these hotlines demanding to know that Wayfair is trafficking children, and then people are calling in, and that has meant that the people who might actually need assistance aren't getting it, which I think is actually kind of the real point of today's episode, is that the actual problem of sex trafficking and human trafficking in general as human trafficking, which encompasses the exploitation, whether it's labor exploitation or sexual exploitation of people around the world, adults, children, all genders, all ages, there is that actual problem. And then there is the QAnonification of sex trafficking, in which the focus becomes on conspiracy theories and on abject nonsense, largely based on an interpretation of what trafficking means that has been pushed forward in some ways over the last 20 to 30 years by people who may have meant well in trying to get people to pay more attention to this issue, but the results have not necessarily been helpful for anyone, including folks who are dealing with the actualities of human trafficking. It's kind of the difference between reality and the movie Taken. And more people are interested in the movie Taken version of trafficking and less interested in the reality of what trafficking might look like and might not look like. Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth the relationship between law and policy around trafficking and the QAnonification that you describe is like they have both gone in the same direction of increased alarm and panic over the last, you know, few years, certainly, but I'm not 100% convinced that they're, I think, frankly, a lot of the people who engage in trafficking fascination or conspiracy are doing it as a ledger activity, and that it's it's it ends up working in the favor of politicians who want to score easy political points by signing off on laws that further criminalize activities as trafficking. But it's this weird area in which crime which is in reality a matter of like law and policy and actual things that are written down and consequences that happen to people turns into a phenomenon of culture instead of a phenomenon of policy and it makes it actually very difficult as somebody who you know runs into a lot of fringe misconceptions about trafficking in the context of immigration, both in theories about, you know, evil cartels and theories about evil ICE, uh, you know, engaging in child trafficking. It can be very difficult to know when you're talking to someone who is just a little bit overly concerned and sensitive to, you know, things that might be happening but might not be like the most important or who's just like kind of over reading the available evidence and somebody who's totally off the deep end. Uh, but generally, the former people are the ones who actually do care more about the kind of, you know, they're they're amenable to talking about definitions, talking about what the real criminal extent of the real criminal phenomenon is. And everybody else is just, why do you believe that this problem isn't as bad as I say it is? Well, and so it's probably useful to think of like, a few different conceptual adjacencies here, because this is where you, you you keep getting problems, right? And so one is sexual abuse of children is a real thing that happens. Uh, but then a question is like, how big a deal is this kind of cinematic like abductions in that versus friends and, and family and, and people in, in communities doing this kind of thing? Another is like within the realm of prostitution, which is also a real thing that happens, how much of it is coerced versus something people do as an economic matter. And then another thing is is an immigration context where the question is like how much of operations whose purpose is to smuggle people across the border are tied up in this kind of 
more objectionable sorts of activities. Because like, obviously, it would be convenient from an immigration enforcement perspective, if every single instance of people trying to help other people sneak into the United States was a sex slavery ring. Right. Like that would that would make the work of busting up uh, immigration smuggling like seem very ennobling. Right. But like factually, we know like it's not true that all sexual abuse of children involves in abductions. It's not true that all prostitution involves heavy coercion. And it's not true that all cases of trans border illicit migration involve sexual exploitation. Right. So the question is like, how should you, how should you think about these things? Should we think about the phenomenon of people sneaking into the United States primarily through a sex trafficking lens? Or should we see that as a relatively minor adjunct to what's really just a a migration phenomenon? I think that there are also when we're talking about child trafficking in particular, other things that abut this, that deal with the relationship between children being with their, you know, birth parents and children being in institutions. And one one question is, what is the extent of abuse in institutional contexts where you hear, you know, there was a report, an OIG report about one child migrant shelter where there were alarmingly high number of sexual abuse complaints. Most of those cases are complaints made by children against other children who were there. But when you take the top line of that and turn it into the people at this migrant shelter are abusing children, it shades more into the question of, you know, sexual abuse and sexual trafficking. And the other tricky question here is when the government broadly has a right to remove children from the homes in which they are resident, because there are often custody concerns and accusations that the government is not being fair to birth parents in removing custody, which can shade very easily into darker theories about what are they trying to do? Where are they trying to place these children? Uh, which also is something that you've run into in the, you know, in the immigration context. The theory that, you know, children were being deliberately separated from their parents in 2018 for the purposes of being put in, you know, white people's foster homes was definitely a shade of that outrage. And frankly, my pet theory will always be that the reason that family separation became a national outrage after having been a you know, a thing that was happening for a month was because people got confused with a story about children who had already left federal custody dropping off the map and had turned it into a story about 4,000 children getting trafficked and the government not knowing about it. But the question of like, who is looking after children and do those people have the children's best interest at heart can very easily turn into questions of, well, are these children being abused and trafficked? So let's back up just for a second, because I want to give us some background information and some numbers. So fewer than 350 people under the age of 21 have been abducted by strangers in the United States since 2010, according to the FBI. Those are the best numbers we have. In comparison, as Dara mentioned, the abduction of children by the non-custodial parent in, say, a divorce proceeding or a separation, this is far more common. For instance, in 2017, that happened more than 2,300 times. And in the vast majority of cases of children who are reported missing to the FBI, 0.1% are reported as having been abducted by a stranger, and roughly more than 95% are runaways. And so it's not that this absolutely never happens. But this is a case in which cases in which someone is abducted by a stranger are so rare that we pay more attention to it for, you know, as with any other kind of rare crime, we pay a lot of attention to the things that don't happen all the time, which then sometimes gives the effect of having it happen all the time. And I think that there's also been the use of a lot of statistics that are not entirely true. So, for example, there's a stat that both Republicans and Democrats have used that said that um, more than 300,000 American children are at risk of sexual exploitation by the commercial sex industry. But for one thing, the use of the term at risk of is kind of a nebulous term. 
And it also comes from a paper that is more than 20 years old. And the 300,000 figure was based on a series of guesses. For instance, the idea that 35% of runaway children away from home for at least a week were at risk and that one quarter of 1% of all youth who were ages 10 to 17 were at risk. And so a lot of these statistics are nebulous, but they're extraordinarily useful, as Dara mentioned, for politicians. So there have been a couple of examples that we'll drop into show notes, but uh, Republican Senator Josh Hawley had this statement about how he you know, took on an Asian sex trafficking ring and freed more than a dozen women from basically sex slavery. But none of that was true. And these raids all resulted in misdemeanor offenses based on this Missouri's massage licensing law. So I think it's worth noting that we've got some of these stats here. And as both Dar and Matt have mentioned, these this issue abuts against immigration policy, but also kind of a cultural understanding or a cultural viewpoint of trafficking in which the trafficking that is uh, that people are at most risk of, the trafficking that happened in Europe and Eastern Europe, particularly after the fall of the Soviet Union and trafficking that happens in the United States today, which is primarily not happening to children and primarily not happening with regard to sex trafficking. Labor trafficking is a major issue. But it's easier for politicians to say that they're fighting against sex trafficking than to say we are fighting to charge people under violations of state level regulations on massage parlors. And it's a way for people to build themselves up. It's illegal to use a massage parlor as cover for being a brothel. But also if like what you do as a prosecutor is you like bust up like three rub and tub operations that weren't hurting anybody, that's not like a great campaign ad for, you know, now you're going to be your state's attorney general. Now you're going to be a U.S. senator. It it makes you sound like you're doing kind of boring, routine law enforcement work. Whereas if you say, oh, I busted open an international sex trafficking ring, like that's that's like you're in the big time. And and you really saw this. I was really struck when when Robert Kraft is the owner of the, the Patriots. He got caught up in a, in a massage parlor sting. And, you know, because I hate Boston sports fans, I was really excited about this. And, you know, it was all good. Um, but the prosecutors, they couldn't say that, like, this was a big deal because Patriots fans are annoying. They had to come up with a a law enforcement reason why it was a big deal. And, you know, so they were like, oh, sex trafficking, blah, blah, blah. And and Elizabeth Nolan Brown at Reason has documented dozens of these cases where you do a press conference where you're like talking about these like international smuggling rings. And then, you know, the cameras go off and charges are actually filed weeks or months later. And it's like, all right, you got like four people on misdemeanors. And, you know, nobody does a press conference about that because it's it's boring, but it creates the impression in a casual news consumer that there is a lot of international sex smuggling rings because they're constantly being busted. Uh, Whereas if what you told people is that there's a lot of gray market prostitution happening in third rate massage parlors, I think I'm like, yeah, that that's probably true. I don't know. It, It doesn't seem that important. I mean, I think the other thing here, you know, like overhyping what you get when you do the bust and then following it up with court docs that, you know, compared to what you're hyping under charge is like fairly standard issue. I mean, it's not good for truth or for informing the public, but it's it is a broader phenomenon. The thing that makes this so particularly useful for law enforcement in the context of trafficking is it gives them the ability to, frankly, file like if you don't have enough to charge the people at the top of the org chart and you're going to end up essentially charging the victims for engaging in illegal activity, it allows you to have it both ways. They can be victims in the press conference and defendants in the federal charges. The slippage by which all unauthorized migration becomes smuggling because it has to be facilitated in order to happen successfully at this point because the border's gotten militarized. So, you know, illicit crossing has become professionalized. 
then becomes, well, smugglers are criminals and they're operating in criminal organ. They're, you know, operating with the consent of criminal organizations and therefore they're traffickers allows people to sim- the people who are being smuggled to simultaneously be victims of trafficking with these horrible dudes doing horrible things to them and also have it be their fault. It's particularly frustrating in the human smuggling context where they're isn't always in reality a bright line between when you're being coerced and when you're, you know, freely signing on to travel with somebody. But conceptually, there is a very bright line there. And so it can be very frustrating to to hear those terms deliberately conflated. But it's extremely useful if you want to make it sound like you're on the side of the little guy without necessarily having the goods to go after the people who you're casting as villains. Can we take a break and then talk about some more of these, like, like why this is problematic? Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. One thing that Jane raised offline that that I think is is relevant here is that because the total quantity of abductions is very low of like abductions by by strangers is is low you get a a sort of a Bayes law phenomenon where if you think you see something that is evidence of a child being abducted by a stranger you're almost certainly wrong just because the the underlying thing you are being watchful for actually almost never happens. So it's almost always like something else that's happening. And a lot of times it's just like a parent whose skin color doesn't look the same as as their child. You know, like people are letting diffuse paranoias latch on to this trafficking idea. Right. This is an example of you know, we have this see something, say something mentality with the help of a number of non-government governmental institutions and a host of other organizations that basically have implied that if you are on a flight and you see a child with an adult who does not appear to be related to that adult, that looks like sex trafficking. And it's it's interesting because um the McCain Institute, whose board chair is uh, Cindy McCain, the white of the late Senator John McCain, she called the cops on a woman at the airport who was a different ethnicity than her child. And Airline Ambassadors International are basically taught to look for if you do not essentially racially match with the adult you're with, as I would not have, as my mother is white and my father is black and I am biracial, that that is reason enough to alert the authorities. And so there was actually just a case um, a couple of weeks ago in which American Airlines allegedly accused a black woman, a black social worker who is bringing a white child to Arkansas for a court-ordered visit with the child's father, a American Airlines flight attendant 
approached her to say that another passenger had accused her of abducting the child and that this might be an example of trafficking. There was no effort to fact check or check that this person actually was a social worker as she was. And they basically took the child from her and they were detained for a pro- you know, more than an hour. And this is a pretty common example, but I think that it gets at something. Um, I've talked about the scourge of see something, say something culture, but I think that this gets at one of the challenges that we have in general when we're talking about these issues is that, as Matt said, it's far easier for prosecutors to say that they're rescuing victims and then ultimately wind up charging them. But it's also far easier for the wider public to believe that if they just report mixed race families to the cops, they're doing something about sex trafficking when what they're actually doing is making it more challenging for actual examples of trafficking and abuse. Because what childhood sexual abuse looks like is generally not sex trafficking. It's not QAnon. It's not, you know, the elites farming children around the world. What it looks like is abuse taking place by parents, by people that the family already knows. And so child abuse is far broader, more pervasive than child abduction. But what child abuse often looks like is what we saw, for instance, in the Larry Nassar USA Gymnastics case, is someone who was trusted by parents to be around children. And when children raised their concerns to parents and to others who were supposed to be in authority, they were basically told, no, you must be misunderstanding what this is, because with the implied understanding that we would know what this would really look like, we would know what actual sexual abuse would really look like, and it would look more like what we see in kind of the sex trafficking conspiracy theories. Yeah, I I think those of us who are skeptical of if you see something, say something, and the distributed surveillance war on terrorism culture that it produces, I think tend to discount that it's more empowering than the alternative. You know, if if your choices are terrible things are happening all around you and the only thing you can do is trust that the government will figure it out and get the bad guys or terrible things might be happening around you and it's and you can help stop them. That's tremendous. And especially I, I think, Jane, your point about what people think sexual abuse looks like versus what it actually looks like is especially relevant in this context because it's so much easier to confront a stranger than it is to confront somebody that you trust. Right. So like giving people participatory war on crime points for doing the easiest thing you can do in public life, which is to express your suspicion of somebody who you're already suspicious of and don't feel at all threatened by, it's a very powerful combination. Obviously, the extent to which trafficking is still happening and, frankly, the extent to which anything that is being where crimes are being conducted by criminal networks, there's a strong incentive to keep innovating and to stay one step ahead of law enforcement. And so, like, yes, I can see arguments for if you're concerned about what's happening at a particular hotel, train the employees of that hotel. You know, they're, they're like, I think there are cases in which you it's unreasonable to expect that someone else will take care of it. But when the hotel in question then turns that into something that you know, hotel guests are like that, that it, when it puts postings in elevators about like, hey, you know, watch for signs of sex trafficking. And then when hotel guests adopt the idea that hotels are sites of potential sex trafficking and adopt and and start being kind of broadly hyper aware when both the government and NGOs are putting PSAs in airports about how those could be locuses of sex trafficking, like the difference between here are places where someone ought to be applying a little more scrutiny and here are places where everyone should assume sex trafficking until proven otherwise is not a super difficult distinction to make if you're a policymaker uh, or for that matter, you know, the, you know, someone who is who works with an NGO that like is working on these issues and understands criminal networks. Uh, But it's not something that it's reasonable to expect the average person to be able to do. And like what becomes very easy for me is to say, look, this isn't a huge issue. Numerically speaking, there are other issues that are that affect more people. I think that discounts the extent to which abuse of children in particular is such a tremendous monstrosity for many people, especially for parents, that any 
efforts to talk about scope risk coming off as cold at best or like totally wrong at worst. Because the idea that if you could save one child, you are doing so much more than anyone could imagine goes so deep. And it's very rare that you run into something that taps into so many of the things people want to do to be considered good people for such unlikely to actually be productive ends. Right. And it plays into the very... uh, We've talked about conspiracies, but conspiracy theories before. And among the attributes of conspiracy theories that's particularly dangerous is that they're self-sealing and self-proving. So, for example, when you argue against QAnon, accusing random celebrities of being part of a giant criminal network of pedophilic sex traffickers, you the response you get if you interact with QAnoners is, don't you care about sex trafficking? Don't you care about child abuse? And as Dara put it, obviously, everybody cares about that issue. But there's an organization, Crimes Against Children Research Center at the University of New Hampshire. They basically said, don't cite numbers about the number of children who may or may not be involved in prostitution, because And I'll quote from the report. The reality is we do not currently know how many juveniles are involved in prostitution. Scientifically credible estimates do not exist. And so I think that it's worth saying that one of the challenges here is that conspiracy theories can often take a real issue, a real thing that is a concern for people. And we've seen this repeatedly over the last five to 10 years with the issues of sexual abuse and pedophilia and you know crimes against children and use them to do their own aims in which people can get involved in the puzzle and the kind of this citizen's detective work that's very appealing for many people, hence the popularity of true crime in general, and use it towards an aim that seems on its face to be a helpful, a boon for society. The challenge is, as we've seen in this Wayfair case, when you are bombarding organizations that are supposed to be helping victims of sexual exploitation and human trafficking with your concerns that a pillow with a name that is a female name might be actually the an example of the trafficking of small children through a major website done so in public, that's a real problem. I mean, that is in in some ways getting in the way of what you purportedly are attempting to do. Well, and look, right, it's it's so obviously a red flag when people are organizations and politicians are jazzed up about a problem, but concede that the data available is not that good, but also aren't trying to do anything about the data quality issue. Like, if if you care about something, like in a real way, you will be insisting on trying to improve the state of the research, because that's how you would know if you're making progress, right? And so the fact that we see 20-year-old studies being cited it's just, it, it's a red flag, right? That like the leaders in this space are actually not bearing down in a thoughtful way on like whatever the extent of sex trafficking is, it's not zero. But to know whether or not we were combating it, we would need to be trying to measure it. But we're not. The people most interested in this just like to cite inflationary measures. And and it matters because, you know, to Dara's point, like mass mobilizing the public is useful. It is a thing that we can do as a society uh, to tackle problems. But understanding what the base rate of the problem is, is important to doing that effectively, right? If you see something, say something, makes sense if the thing you are suspicious you might have seen is in fact fairly common. But if there are very, very few cases of child abduction, then trying to mobilize people on an if you say some, see something, say something, you are going to generate an overwhelming quantity of false positives. You're going to hassle a lot of people. As Jane was saying, you're going to overwhelm the pipeline for investigating complaints. And it's actually a really bad idea in a case like that to mobilize a broad amateur public. You need to restrict it to specialists. On the other hand, Lots of things are common, right? So, like, if you see somebody not wearing a mask, go scold them, right? Like, that would 
work? Because like even the most optimistic polls that I've seen are like 80% of people say you should wear a mask all the time. Um, And we know not everyone complies with that. And 20% is also like a lot of people, right? If you think you are seeing someone not wearing a mask, it's possible that that person has some kind of incredible, like valid medical reason, but probably not. Probably if you see someone not wearing a mask, they're just being thoughtless. So scolding is good. Whereas if you see someone who's with an adult and it doesn't quite eyeball correctly to you, there's probably a good reason for it. Like, it may be weird. Like, it's a social worker transporting a child across state lines for a parental visit. Like, that's a weird situation, but still more common. Like, interracial adoptions are not that common, but they're more common than stranger abductions of children. And, like, people need to need to know that. You, you know, uh, it all started with, with terrorism, right? After 9-11, if you see something, say something. I um, left a suitcase on a train platform in Philadelphia because I was exhausted after the 2016 Democratic Convention and got thoughtless with it. Uh, and when I called Amtrak, uh, the suitcase had been destroyed by, by the bomb squad. I know why they did that. I'm not that mad about it. Um, But the fact is, is that we've never had like a suitcase bomb in the United States of America, right? Um, That's not a thing that's ever happened. And if you look at what actually did happen on 9-11, people did see that it was suspicious that non-citizens from the Middle East were getting flight training without learning how to land airplanes. Um, That is very suspicious. And it was seen as suspicious, and it was reported. And so the problem was the FBI didn't do anything about it. Uh, So as far as we know on terrorism, there are no cases where people saw suspicious activity that was in fact terrorism, but failed to report it. And there are cases where the FBI, looking through the whole stream of shit that they have to deal with on any given day, didn't act on a valid lead. So to respond to that set of situations by saying what we need is more low-quality leads— is like really analytically wrong. Like it's it's not like terrorism is really bad. It would be terrible if people were blown up in a train station. But when you look at the record of counterterrorism in the United States, it's just not the case that marginal behavior has gone underreported. It's that really dubious behavior that has been reported hasn't been acted on in an adequate way. Whereas with child trafficking, at least it seems to me like we actually have no idea like what like like what the issue even is, if there is one, because the people involved are more invested in like blowing up their massage parlor stings than trying to understand. Matt, you've actually articulated a pretty useful heuristic for uh, bystander intervention that like I think works in a lot of different contexts, like obviously the mask thing, but the the framework of how common is the problem that you think you've seen how likely are you that you've successfully identified uh, to have successfully identified that problem? And will it help if you have successfully identified that problem is actually like a pretty good broad three-part test, like street sexual harassment. How common is it? Less common now that people, you know, all wear masks so we can't be told to smile anymore. Uh, But like, but, you know, still probably a problem. How likely are you to be correct in identifying it? Highly likely. How likely are you to succeed in in stopping it, if you identify it, like probably depends on who you are. Littering is a pretty obvious like, hey, that passes a good three three prong test for this is something I should intervene in as a bystander. Police beating someone up and, you know, or in a case where that happens, how likely are you to succeed if you intervene? Probably not that likely. I think if people are really looking for where does the line between not my problem and my problem because it's everyone's problem fall. That is, you've just articulated a really good set of standards. And it's probably mostly going to be things where the individual incidents are not that terrible. Like the issue with like street harassment is that it's very high volume. Not that, like, if I can save one victim one night, like, it's all worth it, right? But it's like the reason it's a good case for intervention is that it just happens a lot. So if you think that's what you're seeing, you probably are seeing it because it's a very common behavior. And like that's where it would be useful to like mobilize a lot of people to like do a lot more stuff. Um, whereas like 
really rare things are just hard to stop unless you're some kind of specialist. I want to get back to something that I think is really important to say, specifically on the issue of childhood sexual abuse and childhood sex trafficking, is that what we see here again and again, and I'll drop in some links because this kind of reminds me of the satanic panic of the 1980s, in which a host of entirely innocent people largely involved in daycare industry, which was relatively new at the time, um, were accused of involving children in horrifying cult abuse that was just unspeakably terrible. And then it turns out many years later, everyone realized that none of that had actually happened and it was a moral panic, is that this was a a case in which in many of these cases, the people making allegations were children. But the challenge that we have in this case and others is that when children were identifying the actor Chuck Norris from a series of pictures as being someone who forced them into a terrible sexual abuse situation that involved witches flying, they were believed. And yet when children often are trying to talk about abuse that's happening, especially from an adult that they know or are supposed to trust or be around, they're not believed. And I think that a lot of folks who have been through abuse of some kind have experienced. And so I think that one of the real challenges here when we're talking about abuse is that it is very easy, as we said, it is very easy for people to believe that a foreign entity, often literally a foreign entity, is responsible for sexual abuse um, or for sex trafficking of children in some means. Even if you're not clear about the numbers, you know that it hypothetically could have happened and that the person who is least connected to your community often folks who might be undocumented or people who are of a different ethnicity than you, they must be responsible. But they rare they rarely are. It's often, as I said, people who children already know, who they've been either told to trust or already trust, who are able to groom them in some means. And so I think that that's what bothers me most about this. And I mean, of the many, many, many things that bother me about this kind of QAnonification of childhood sexual abuse or human trafficking is that it's a means by which in sometimes people can express existing prejudices. You're already suspicious of the massage parlor that seems to be owned by people you don't know and don't see. You're already suspicious of um, how undocumented immigrants entered the country. You're already suspicious of kind of things that you see on the internet that concern you or, you know, you've heard about these famous people who are involved in these terrible things, but you you want to inherently trust the people you already know, people who you already know who may be committing these acts and in some ways are able to do so, in my view, more easily while everyone's distracted trying to scream about whether or not Wayfair is selling children alongside pillows. I think we better take a break, do, do a white paper, <laughs> but well said. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Today we have for you Inequality in Household Adaptation to Schooling Shocks, COVID-Induced Online Learning Engagement in Real Time by Andrew Batcher-Hicks, Joshua Goodman, and Christine Mulhern. A lot of people have been interested in remote learning's impact on children and its impact on uh, disparities in the educational system. Uh, so one thing that, that they look at here is simply... Um, internet searches for online learning resources. So it's basically like 
measures parents' engagement with the question of how can I get my kid like good digital learning tools? And they show that um, higher uh, higher income regions uh, have a lot more of this and that not only low-income regions, but also rural regions where, uh, as I can tell you, the internet is not as good, um, have much lower levels of engagement with this. And so, you know, over and above, like, all the other kind of issues with equity in the move to, to distance learning, you just have the fact that the kind of, I don't know, stereotypical yuppie parents are, like, really geared up to like try to find the best Zern math and, you know, whatever other kind of units and more more working class families either don't have, like literally don't have the broadband internet resources to do that, or I don't know, are dealing with other shit in their life and, and aren't like able to make that kind of effort, maybe don't have the language skills in a lot of cases because, you know, these resources are not like optimized necessarily for immigrant families' needs are much more likely to be working outside the house and can't be kind of, you know, catching a 15-minute break to, you know, come in and, and meddle with this stuff. I know a lot of people in, in my son's school, you know, who have been put in the care of older siblings, in effect, and they're doing their best, but we're talking like 11, 12-year-olds who are supervising four and five-year-olds. And their best is not as good as one might hope. It seems really, really bad to me. Like it's a, there's these like dual track conversations where, because of George Floyd, we're like talking more than ever about structural inequities in American society. Um, but because of pandemic-induced school closures, uh, they're actually getting much, much worse in real time, like before our eyes, with nothing much being done about it. Right. This is another example in which coronavirus has adhered itself to existing inequalities. And the paper goes into um, how it hopes that this can help policymakers and school leaders formulate more effective responses, which I think is beautifully optimistic of these researchers. But since, and they make the point that essentially, if you could expand access to home computers, which some cities are attempting to do um, by giving uh, students Chromebooks and laptops, I know this happening in Baltimore and Pittsburgh, and improving access to broadband internet, which I think is kind of the political issue that people don't tend to think about that much, because I think that there is a construence in which many adults don't recognize the degree to which the internet is essential for, was essential for students learning even before this happened and now is basically a requirement. If you are attempting to have lessons on Zoom, we're doing this podcast right now on Zoom. And because of the internet where Matt happens to be, it was not working so well. And if that's happening for our podcast, imagine what's happening if you're attempting to teach algebra. So I think that this this is a useful paper to give information on how these inequalities are showing up already. But I also think that there's a lot of policy that needs to take place and policy discussions that need to take place before we get even close to addressing it. My only note, and this is not substantive at all, is that this is the rare study that uses Google search data as its instrument in the totally correct way to use Google search data as an instrument. Like there's a lot of research out there that essentially uses Google search data as a proxy for interest or even as a proxy for whether people like something. I mean, that's that's more common in like internet memes, but there there is, you know, a tendency to look at racial resentment in a geographically specific way by looking at Google search volume for the N-word, for example, which like is one of those things that I've seen robust defenses of it, that it tracks things that we would that are objectively better measures of racial resentment, but then you use the objectively better measure of racial resentment. You don't use the thing that you think is a good proxy for it. But because this is literally a study about who is seeking out resources and what resources are they seeking out, that's exactly the sort of context where, yes, Google has a de facto monopoly over people seeking out resources on the internet right now, especially if they're not necessarily products that are being purchased. And therefore, this is the case where this tremendously large and available data set is also the data set that is correct. I I just want to say that, like, you know, this is a disaster unfolding before our eyes, um, but also not something that people are completely unable to 
impact um, if, if you want to. And I will shout out my, my wife, who is a, is a hero, and she is, you know, organizing a kind of you know, distance learning co-op, uh, as you've probably seen uh, many articles about you know, trend pieces in, in the newspaper, but like is deliberately doing one that involves English language learners and low-income kids and, and a racially diverse group of people from our son's school because we have the, we're a relatively privileged family and we have the opportunity to, um, put tables and chairs up outside and have a lot of internet connected devices and give everybody some fruit and, you know, help to make sure that kids who don't have, whose, whose parents have to work outside the house, have somebody to like watch them and help them through this stuff. And it's, it's going to be hard. Uh, but so many people, I think like, want to contribute in some kind of constructive way to society. Um, but then you have to you have to think about like what what can you actually do in this moment in time. And this is one where, you know, not everyone, but a lot of people, a lot of the kinds of people who who listen to this show may have some ability to to step up. Um, but it, you know, when it involves reaching out to people because, you know, uh, people have pride. Like, they don't want to ask for help. Everyone is doing their best. Nobody's best is what they want for their children exactly under these circumstances, and everyone is is struggling. Uh, but, you know, when you can lend a hand to people in need, knowing that, like, I find this to be incredibly stressful this, this time. But then I step back and I look, like, objectively, like, I have a job that can be done remotely. Vox Media has long had a remote-friendly working culture. I make more money than the average person. I have only one child. Like it's, I'm, you know, you have to build some mental resilience, and then think like, well, what what can we actually do to help people who are in a worse situation? Because the easiest thing is like, well, things are bad for me, so. I've got nothing, uh, but but things are worse for for so many other people, and you know it's incumbent on us to to ask what we can do. Agreed. Yep. <laughs> All right. Um, so you know, also help the world by spreading love of the Weeds podcast. Always um, tell others. Um, thanks, guys. Uh, thanks to our sponsors, and thanks as always to our producer Jeffrey Geld. And the Weeds will be back on Friday. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Prop G Pod wherever you get your podcasts. 